It's lights out and away we go. Podcasting from Studio 2520, somewhere near Akron, Ohio, this is Tackling the Chicane. Episode 7. The counter continues for you, and we're back after a somewhat uh, delay, a bit of a delay. Bit of a delay in the sk- in the schedule. Uh, busy times here at Studio 2520. We have uh, your departure back down to Otterbein coming up soon, and just trying to make some preparations for that. Um and just general life things happening. Yeah. The construction crew was in the uh, studio last week, so it made it a little difficult to record as we are currently dumping in copious amounts of our own funds into the studio. So, yeah. So let's just um quick overview of what we're going to cover. Since last time we've recorded, a lot has happened. Um. We're going to discuss some silly season stuff, a lot of S's, uh, with regards to Formula One, drivers making announcements, drivers on the move, drivers contracted to teams and then not uh, driving for them. I'm going to talk about the Hungarian Grand Prix, which happened July 31st a little bit, and then shifting into soccer going to talk a little Scottish premiership and we are going to discuss the happenings of the first weekend of action in the Premier League. So, we've got a lot to get into and it should be exciting. Well, I have preparation done for the Hungarian GP for the uh Man City versus West Hampton game and I have my box box here. Uh we will need to tread lightly. You'll have to fill me in on some of the uh, so-called uh, drama that's happening. And we can still discuss, but you probably have uh, a little bit more knowledge than I do of that right now. So, All right. Well, let's just start with it. The big headline that we that has happened since last time we recorded was Sebastian Vettel announcing his retirement, currently racing for Aston Martin, probably more popularly known for his four world championships with Red Bull. Uh, He announced his retirement after this season, and uh, I don't know, was it expected, unexpected? What do you think? Uh, Well, that that is one thing, uh, looking back on the past 10 days or so, that I did Happened to get very early notification on Sunday morning, I believe it was. Yeah, it was right before the race, I think. I thought a few things were interesting. A, he created his first Instagram account to make the announcement, so he had never had one before, which I think is is a bit strange. Uh, second, if you replay possibly episode one, maybe episode two of this particular podcast. I believe I made reference to the fact that uh, Seb looked a little bit out of sorts, so to speak. 
Uh, I did not think that it was going to be a full retirement. I expected a team change or shift of some sort. I did not, uh, I didn't see the retirement coming. To me, it looked like one of those things where perhaps his options in Formula One had been exhausted. Obviously, he's still a talented driver. I just don't know who would have taken a shot with him next year. Um, and I think maybe he thought the writing was on the wall a bit. And I think maybe it just, he might just kind of be a little disinterested at this point. There was some alluding to the fact that he may have some views of the, how do I want to put this, uh, environmental impact of uh, Formula One racing. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly that's an opinion that he he's allowed to have. But if I, I'm going to be a bit disappointed if I find out that this is a global warming issue and that he has decided to retire because he doesn't have he doesn't feel like it's the right thing to do is to continue racing in f1 yeah i don't don't know if that's really the case um i i just think the driving he's gone as far as he can go in formula one obviously we know his environmental uh interest in that kind of thing but i i would be shocked if that's the culprit if that's the the spearhead of why he's retiring um yeah i i don't know i i just think not really unexpected for me um and that left a seat open for aston martin and uh instantly uh they signed fernando alonso to aston martin currently running for Alpine. He's kind of the ageless wonder of Formula One right now. Anytime any team has an opportunity to sign uh, Fernando, they're going to do so. Uh, Apparently, he's not ready to retire at 41. Um, He's going to bring the fans. He'll bring the attention in the paddock. Um, It's a win-win situation, even if he runs a single season. Uh, with them, it, it's a, it's going to be a win-win for for uh, Aston Martin for sure. I mean, I feel like they are they need a driver who's going to instantly get them results because at this point in time, Aston Martin is not the most financially stable team, and they're not the most uh, stable team on the track either. So, you know, I I think. Fernando's going to obviously bring that experience and then just some stability. I think you can expect, you know, competitiveness at the very least weekly from him. The other consideration being that uh, Mr. Stroll may want as a mentor yeah. of some sort for, I mean, for Lance, and that makes total sense to me. Yeah, he's still, Lance Stroll's still quite young despite how many seasons he's been in Formula One. Um, yeah, so th- that, that does bring up an interesting point. I don't know how long Alonzo would stay at Aston Martin. I, I don't 
admittedly don't know what the contract was, but still interesting, and we're starting to see a lot of pieces and parts moving now for next season. Um, I think traditionally the summer break brings this season uh, after season. This is when um, strategy is being played out, moves are made. There, we may see, and then we'll see the the typical. We may see the typical year end moves. Also, yeah. there's been some some question about Alfatari if uh, Sonoda is going to stay at Alfatari if he's a good enough driver to even be in Formula One. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that remains to be seen. I guess. Yeah, I I think that would be harsh to count him out this early. Uh, the the big recent one headline debacle in uh, Formula One is surrounding Oscar Piastri, who was racing in Formula Two, he's the Australian, um, and he was contracted to Alpine. Alpine moves Alonso on. Naturally, you're thinking, okay, Oscar Piastri is going to uh, drive for Alpine next season. And... F1 and Alpine make the announcement that he was signed for 2023. And then Oscar Piastri tweets a few moments later, oh, I'm actually not, despite the reports, I'm not racing for Alpine next season. So that was just a complete mind-boggling situation when the Formula One official, you know, Instagram is posting that Oscar Piastri is racing for Alpine. I can I can see how that that can happen, and probably isn't the first time that something like that has happened. Um, I don't know what the end result is going to be. If he's well, going to, you know, it's gonna it's gonna be McLaren. Um, all of the evidence points to the fact that. He didn't want to race for Alpine, and that was because McLaren had uh, pretty much promised him a seat, which would mean, naturally, Daniel Ricciardo is not going to be at McLaren next year. Um, And I think that was pretty obvious and has been obvious for a while. It's it's one of those situations where it's kind of a domino effect where, you know, one thing sets off another. So Piastri saying, I'm not racing for Alpine next season. Everyone knows you're going to be in Formula One. So then you start looking at, okay, where would he actually be racing? And it has to be McLaren. Um, and like I said, not really a super well-kept secret that Ricardo will probably not be racing for them next year. That begs the question where... Where does Ricardo end up? Because he's he's going to end up somewhere. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, some there has been historically there have been seasons where very suitable, uh, well-known drivers don't have a seat for yeah. an entire season, and then they they might they'll they come, come back. back. I don't the next know. year. I mean, you'd have to think. Um, Alpine is kind of that the place without Piastri. 
with moving Alonzo on, I mean, Alpine, I guess, could look somewhere else, but I don't know if you're Alpine. I feel like it's uh, kind of hard to not sign Daniel Ricciardo. I mean, we it's really hard to say how good of a driver he is right now because clearly the car is not for him at McLaren. Those two aren't agreeing. So, I mean, is is Daniel Ricciardo a huge downgrade from Fernando Alonso? I don't know. Maybe. Well, Alonso has an aura uh, around him, having been in the series longer than any other driver, has the most experience. World champion. World champion. So that answers that question. Yeah. Uh, Alpine seems like they were up and coming uh, I mean, last part of the first half of the season here. Yeah, they've been strong. So I don't think it would be a bad thing if Ricardo ends up at Alpine. But that's this is like the spinning wheel right now. Yeah, I'm I mean, all sure. you can do is kind of just guess, which is part of the fun, I guess. Yeah. So but, um, we'll stay uh, on top of the ever-changing driver situation, and even F1 has made poked a little bit of fun about on their Instagram page. Um, you know, they know that all these guys are in play, and frankly, I, they like that aspect of it. Yeah. It keeps people engaged, engaged I guess. so. Yeah. Well, uh, well, let's just move on to the Hungarian Grand Prix. Uh, not... For me, I'm just going to throw this out there. Maybe not the most memorable race of all time. Um, the podium was Max Verstappen winning. It was Lewis Hamilton in second, and it was George Russell in third who won his first pole. I think qualifying actually was quite fun to watch. Um, any thoughts pre-race or of just the results as a whole well if anything the the big story in this race is ferrari and tire strategy was poorly executed Mm -hmm. uh again (laughs) yeah um which led me to do a bit of digging on the whole tire thing and our box box is going to be an introduction to uh, tires in F1 and I couldn't even there's so much so many rules that have to do with the tires and and when and how they're used I ha- I'm gonna have to split it into potentially two maybe three mm-hmm. <laughs> technical segments but this first one is just going to be about the basic compounds and and things like that um, this clearly was a misplayed strategy so much that, uh, you know, Ferrari was so frustrated at the end of the race. Um, Mattia basically, or Mattia takes his ball and goes home with three laps to go. I don't know if you remember during yeah, the race. I do remember that now that you say it. Yeah, he he got off of the pit box and disappeared into the into the uh, car hauler. So he wanted no part of any 
uh, post-race interview or anything, which I thought was very telling. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, y you'd have to imagine he's pretty frustrated as they have continued to shit the bed race after race after race at this point. Um, but going to qualifying, George Russell of Mercedes getting his first pole, and it was, frankly, kind of out of the blue because when we were watching together, it was, you know, I think it was, what was the first staff here? Leclerc was top, or maybe Signs, one of those three. I think it was Leclerc. Okay, yeah, and then you, you kind of thought it was done. Russell was finishing his lap. Comes across, boom, he's first. So that was that was interesting. Yeah, I thought it was great, actually. Um, anytime we can we can get someone else on pole or, you know, someone else that's clearly fast or faster than Red Bull and Ferrari, that's a good thing, mm -hmm. even if it is Mercedes. But that's who we're dealing with here. Yeah. Um, just noted, too, the that there were two uh Gasly started in the pit off of the pit lane in this particular race and that was due to power plant replacement. Mhm. Mm um trying to look through my notes here. Verstappen actually started 10th. Yeah. So well, the, the Red Bull's engines were shit. They were dealing with engine problems through all of qualifying. That's right. Both Red Bulls had uh, power unit changes with no penalty because they're still within their limits. Their three-engine yeah. allocation. So that that actually mixed up qualifying quite a bit because the Red Bulls were not really that fast. Right. So not to skip ahead, but... Well, yeah, go ahead. The fact that they continue to come back from positions like that of just complete disadvantage and take victories tells me that they're going to be very hard to unseat in the second half, but yeah, any, anything can happen too. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll see. Maybe we'll talk about, uh, some standings things later, but, um, if you just want to get into the race, do you have anything early on that caught your eye i mean honestly there was not a ton there happening there wasn't anything earth shattering i mean we had a virtual safety car on lap two alex albon made contact with lance stroll which i mean you could say that just about like every other race yeah you know uh as a result uh magnuson on lap six got a black and orange flag because of damage resulting from you know being around that said contact yeah which sucks because you know that's that's gonna put him way back they had to, and i'm sure they had to change the the nose of the car and all that yeah anytime you get a black and orange flag your race is usually kind of done on lap 13 i have a note here that verstappen made a radio call that, that he was not happy or there was something going on uh where they had to go to a, a different what they call fail mode there's several programs in the oh. car mm -hmm. and he heard or felt something that i just put that he was spooked 
Yeah. Uh, you know, after you replace a power unit, I'm sure there's little less confidence mm-hmm. than normal. Uh, but apparently they were able to switch to whatever program they needed to, and it, it was never an issue again. So, Well, when you – going back to qualifying, when he was, you know, in the midst of doing so, he had mentioned that there was a failure or something wasn't right, and they never really got that problem resolved in qualifying. That's why he finished so low. Um, so, yeah, it makes sense that he probably – wouldn't have had a ton of confidence in his car throughout the race. Yeah, and I don't, uh, I don't know if you had a note of a little, I don't know, shell game by Ferrari on lap sixteen. They made a dummy call. Oh yeah, the, I forgot about that. But just uh, I don't know, trying to mess with people, I guess. But right. I feel like all they ever do is mess with themselves. So they they made a dummy call, which ultimately caused Russell to pit on lap 16. Sainz stays out for another lap, pits on lap 17, but he has a slow stop um, and ends up, you know, coming out behind Russell by one. So he's in sixth now. And of note, Sainz on lap 17 goes to the medium tire. Okay. Yeah. Which would later prove to be potentially the wrong call. Well, um, yeah, not nearly as egregious as in lap forty when Leclerc pits and they put on the hard tire. Which right. So I mean, it's it's kind of two calamitous errors. We'll we'll talk about this in box box, but you have to run at least two different compounds on mm-hmm. the dries. Yeah. Uh, but it all has to do with what compound you start on. So, but clearly that's, it, it blows my mind that this team, I don't know if they're overthinking all this stuff or if they've got too many people trying to make too many calculations, but no one else, no one else seems to be having the same stupid mistakes or making the same dumb mistakes that Ferrari's making. They yeah. have the cars, they have the drivers, they just can't get any kind of strategy. The strategy together. is always messed up, always. That tells me they they might have a couple too many cooks maybe on the pit box, I don't know. Yeah, it's just no real consistency with any sort of strategy and then when I just feel like they're always overthinking things, like just messing things up all the time. Um <clears throat> lap 41 Verstappen goes around Leclerc Leclerc of course is a sitting duck with the hard tires and then spins Verstappen spins do you remember that um yeah just yeah but he was able to he saved it recover and I mean it, he didn't I don't even think he lost a position no other than the Leclerc position who's directly behind him but right I want to back up a few laps because I have, and I don't know if this is notable or not, but Esteban Ocon and Alonso got into a little bit of a squabble where Alonso was trying to go around Ocon and Ocon was blocking and blocking and blocking. And and Alonso was like, you know, 
And they've done this that before. This is ridiculous. Yeah. They, and yeah. while that's happening, Ricardo goes, all right, well, you guys can play around. I'll just whip, you know, whip around you. So yeah. they, they lost, you know, two, two, he lost, uh, Alonzo lost two positions. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, so that's happened in the past, like you said, too. One of those things that, like, people have to understand, when two drivers are fighting with each other, all they're doing is slowing down. So it's it, it makes you more vulnerable to other people behind you. And they have done that before. They did it round one in Saudi Arabia, I think it was. Like, the fighting and jockeying for position with each other, like, just let's just run our race, you know. The race is not going to be won or determined by, like, which one is in front, you know. Just, like, if I were the principal, just let, let's calm down a little bit here. Yeah. Then there was a five-lap, basically, attack by Leclerc on Russell, and Russell was able to defend his position for five laps, and it it's one of those things that you had to watch, but he, he was driving masterfully to block Leclerc for five laps. That's hard to do mm-hmm. without making uh, grave errors. Yeah. Uh, it was a great defense, but eventually Leclerc would take the lead at lap 31. Mm-hmm. Um, Verstappen really started to charge through the field around lap 35. There was rain slight rain i think there was more rain than what we could see on tv maybe yeah um sonoda spins shocker um and then we had like you said we talked around lap 40 about leclerc putting the hard tires on yeah (laughs) and then the verstappen spin at lap 42 i feel like so after leclerc puts on the hard tires and then verstappen does the spin like that was kind like that was kind of it because Leclerc was he's been the fastest car and when he's you know just kind of dead weight with the hard tires there wasn't a whole lot of racing left other than I um, Mercedes the two Mercedes were kind of going at it but right. Verstappen just marched up the whole grid so the the error was the order in which they decided to run tires i guess yeah. yeah. They they both both Ferraris ended up on softs around lap 48 for Sainz uh 55 for Leclerc. Which but by that, that time was a, yeah, it was a correction. Right. By that time it was too late. La- lap 55 Leclerc pits soft tire out in p- P6 and then four laps later that's when uh Bonato takes his ball and and disappears into yeah, the well, into the motorhome. Yeah, they just completely, just like completely ruined their race with their strategy. Um, yeah, I mean Verstappen after the spin marches up and just kind of does his thing, cruises to victory. You know, right by lap sixty three, he's got a ten second plus lead, which you don't like. That sounds familiar you to like everyone dominance. listening because that's what happens. A lot. A lot. Probably because he's, by a pretty significant margin, the best driver in Formula One, and Red Bull don't make strategy errors. 
So I, I sure. Mean, it, you I don't kind of simplify with it. that. I don't disagree with it. I just I find it interesting that this guy can put himself ten seconds ahead of the field. That's that's pretty. Yeah. I mean, he just has the ability. I mean, he wins by 7.8 seconds. He just has the ability to just, I mean, eat up track. Like, just easily put gaps on people. Um, one thing of interest in regards to standings is with this Lewis Hamilton-George Russell 2-3, it's gotten a lot tighter between Mercedes and Ferrari than it's been for a long while, you know. I think that was one of those races where Ferrari needed more points than they got, obviously, and Mercedes capitalized once again. I mean, Hamilton's been on uh, the podium for like four or five weeks in a row now. He's just silently kind of racking up points like no one's business. They're only 30 points yeah, the constructors championship. And I think George out. Russell has only finished out of the top five maybe once this season. I think in the second half, that's going to be something to follow pretty closely. I, that's our battle is going to be in the constructors between Ferrari and Mercedes for that. Yeah, and for the for the second, for second. Place. unless um, something catastrophically happens to Red Bull. Yeah, um, I don't see them, you know, giving up a ninety-seven point lead. Yeah, I I'm not calling it constructor wise yet, but it's certainly looking that way. Um, Alpine, I think, have another double points day. Let me just they do eight yep. nine. Yep, I had that down here. Uh, Valtteri Botas back in the points. Yes, that's good to see if you're. I don't know, us, I guess. <laughs> um, Lando Norris finished seventh. He's been strong recently. Uh, McLaren kind of not trending in a great direction, but Norris has been pretty comfortable. Um, that 4-5 battle between Alpine and McLaren, Alpine now lead by four points, 99 points to Alpine, McLaren with 95 uh, do you see Alpine expanding that lead? Because I certainly do. I, I think Alpine trending in the right direction. I mean, after the little Piastri thing and Alonso on the move, I think maybe things could shake up a little bit. But who knows? They're in a good spot. Yeah. I mean, I mean they've been running consistently well for a while. So if you if you put a box around the top five teams – your two, three, and your four or five positions will be the ones that will probably be the most interesting to watch. Yeah, that's probably where all the action at the top end of the standings is going to happen. Um, Lance Stroll finished in 11th, and Sebastian Vettel finished in 10th. So Aston Martin got a point. Uh, and they sit seven points behind Alpha Tauri. Um, I don't know. I, d I don't think they're passing. I don't know. Alpha Tauri haven't really scored points in a while, so who knows? Um, seven seven point differential there. Yeah. Or uh, so not. 
totally insurmountable. You you think <laughs> AlphaTauri has a hard time scoring points? Yeah, so. they like to crash a lot. <laughs> um, we just want to shift over to the driver championship. Two weeks ago, the last time we recorded, I posed you the question of did Max Verstappen seal the deal with the Drivers' Championship, and you were not ready to call it. Well, he won again and has 258 points. The next closest is 80 points behind in Charles Leclerc. Are you ready to call it, Dad? What do we have? What do we have left? Well, I think we have eight races. Eight, eight races left. Maybe, maybe nine. I will make my, I will make my call after the second race in the second half of the season. Okay. Um, look, Ferrari, unless Ferrari does a one eighty and pulls their head out of their ass, nobody's gonna catch him. Yeah. The question is, is Perez going to be able to swing into the second-place driver yeah, position spot? He's only five, he's only five points out. That's way more feasible yeah. than two taking one. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. Um, I think Perez could actually do that. Leclerc's not amazingly consistent at the moment. Um I am going to say it now. Max Verstappen is going to be the driver's champion. Uh, I I have not seen any evidence of anyone that is going to be able to pass him. So mark it down. August 9th, Max Verstappen, world champion. And you can clip it. I don't care. I'm pretty confident. I, I think I've seen enough. Um. And when you see dominance like this, um, I'm pretty confident in that uh, prediction. So there you go. Getting bold here. So if we, if, if you have any other, you know, things to say about the Hungarian Grand Prix or just any F1 doings before we shift to box box. No, I think... Uh I think we covered the race um, quite well, actually, for being some 10 days plus yeah. out. Yeah, uh, we it's, tried. Sometimes it's tough to uh, to do this on the same schedule, so uh, did all right. we did okay. All but, right. yeah, we can, do, we can do a box box here. We're getting into the world of the rubber here in the rubber city. So hit me with all of your tire knowledge. It's time. Ah, <laughs> ah. Every time. Yes. It's, it's well. It's kind of. It's kind of hard to. Uh, this soundboard is a little bit more difficult than what most people would think to operate. Okay, so the box box for episode seven, and I think it is a fitting topic after Ferrari's uh, frustration with their choice of tires in the Hungarian GP. 
But uh, we're going to start out with the basics. And there is a lot of information on tires in F1, so much so that we will have to wring out the most interesting parts or else it would get very boring and te- very technical uh, very quickly. Yeah. Let's keep the fans engaged. Right. So, obviously, the manufacturer of said tires in F1 is Pirelli. Mm-hmm. And Pirelli provides F1 with five different dry compounds from hard to soft. And those compounds are designated C1 to C5. C1 being the hardest compound, C5 being the softest. In addition to those five uh, dry tire compounds, there are two uh, what they call uh, wet tires or rain tires. And those two tires are intermediates, which are slightly less aggressively treaded. And then the full wets, which look very much like a street racing tire, almost yeah. like what what's uh, on my vehicle upstairs. The, the wet tires. The wet tires. Uh, so what happens is, is teams are told a few weeks in advance of any given GP or race, which three of the five dry weather compounds are going to be allocated for the race. And that's a call. I believe that for, uh, that, uh, Pirelli makes to F1 and says, these are what we will, we shall provide for said race that based is, on yeah. track conditions, so on and so forth. It can be any one of the compounds between C1 and 5, uh, but there will be three. Mm-hmm. And here's something I did not know, which I find a, a bit interesting, and now I hope you that the listeners do too. If you're paying attention to the color codes on the tires... The chosen three are then color-coded hardest, white, medium, yellow, softest, red. Mm -hmm. So it could be, for example, a C1, 2, and 3. Yeah, which which we saw at Silverstone. Right, which would be white, yellow, red. Or it could be a 3, 4, and 5. Uh three being more of a medium hard but in that particular race it would be the hardest of the three so all you really need to know is at the beginning of the race they will do a a short segment on which of the compounds were allocated yeah they will make it very clear correct very hard to miss where it gets technical is the number of sets of each compound that each team gets and the order in which they run and return those sets. So I'll, I'll get to just a, a brief explanation here. At least two different uh, dry compounds must be used during the race. But that does not include the tire that you may start the race on, which also has to do with practice and qualifying. That's going to be a separate box box. Okay. Um, but the total number of sets of tires for any given weekend practice through qualifying through GP, how they are managed will be, you know, a topic 
probably two box boxes because of the complexity. And basically it comes down to the tires are all tracked electronically. The sets are tracked electronically. So there's all these rules that are involved with if you run a set for a certain number of laps, they have to be returned before you can put your next set on. It's very strange. Um, but yeah. it's always been a, a, a pretty technical, highly technical aspect. Uh, but we will we'll break it down into uh, several segments so that uh, we don't confuse the listeners. I'm already drowning in a sea of rubber right now. So correct. So there, there's there's our box box for episode seven. I'm sure everybody's riveted by that. All righty. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, the thing about F1 is there are a lot of topics that can kind of like a science class so well i like to look at it this way there may be there may be lots of listeners out there who if they watch a gp f1 gp they're like hmm that's strange why does that guy have red yeah letter tires and that guy has white letter tires well yeah we've provided that information now listeners can come back to the podcast maybe jot down a note re-listen should they want to it's just all about the knowledge yeah well you got to have knowledge otherwise you're just watching cars driving around but uh i think we've covered what we've needed to in the world of formula one and we're gonna just delve ourselves into all of the footy that has happened that has taken interest to us um the European season is off, and it has started with a bang. Um, Premier League started last weekend, and there were some pretty interesting and, dare I say, entertaining matches. We're going to first talk about a match that happened uh, July the 31st, so we missed a week. We were going to cover this one anyways. And we're going to do it now. And let me grab my handy-dandy notes for this one. That match was Celtic versus Aberdeen in the Scottish Premiership. Um, we had initially, well, we were hoping to maybe see this game in a slightly more fun environment. Um, but I worked for the man and the man did not allow me to do that. So instead we watched it in the confines of the studio. Yes, we were going to a watch party in Cleveland, which I was very much looking forward to as well. Uh, apparently the Albrecht family had other plans for Garrett on Sunday oh, uh, to include in a full eight-hour shift. Oh. Jesus. From 11 a.m. to 7. 7 p.m. Yeah. So thank you very much, Albrechts. I'm sure that. one of them are listening because they're fans of soccer. Anyways, match day one in the Cinch Premiership for sponsorship reasons, Celtic versus Aberdeen. Um, Celtic are going to win this match 2-0 thanks to goals from Stephen Welsh 
and a screamer from Jota. Um, took place at Celtic Park. First match of the season, Celtic lifted or raised the championship flag in Glasgow on that day. Full house atmosphere was rocking. Um, Aberdeen, one of those teams that had, did not have a great season last year, but kind of has a bit of historical precedence in Scotland. So you're expecting a, a decent fight from them. Celtic and Aberdeen, interestingly, both wind up in a 4-2-3-1 formation. Um, I, I, I think I want to do a little running theme here with Americans that may or may not be involved in these matchups. Um, Cameron Carter-Vickers for Celtic was involved and played the whole 90 as a center back, and he has been recently playing for the United States men's national team. So he's someone to keep an eye on. Um, Dad, I'm just going to I'm gonna go to you. I know it's been a while. Um, just give me some general thoughts about the game. This was kind of your first real go at the European game. So just some general thoughts you had. What, what, um, what struck you as maybe being different from you know, MLS, or just what struck you in general? Well, I will say this. It, this, this could be, potentially, now, for all of you people out there who are soccer aficionados, I may like the Scottish Premier League more than any other form of soccer that I've seen thus far. Thus far. Thus far, indeed. Um, the only thing that I can say about it is the officiating is totally different than the MLS. Yeah. It's somewhere. The MLS is like far right. Okay. The English Premier League is in the middle. Okay. And then the Scottish Premier League is on the left side. And the I'm not talking politically speaking. Yeah, the spectrum, spectrum of, of, of refereeing. Of so you've got. Let them play in the Scottish Premier League. Uh-huh. You've got in the English Premier League, let them play, but we're going to throw some yellow cards and we're going to call some penalties and we're going to have – doesn't. I, I can't imagine what you must do in the Scottish Premier League to get a yellow or red card because <laughs> they, were playing very, they were playing very physical football it's, or soccer, which – it's got to be egregious. I totally, I thought, I really enjoyed the game. And there's so much soccer on at any one given time. <laughs> on my weekends, I, I don't have hours and hours, but I will find uh, at your uh, suggestion games that I, that I will record and try to watch at a later date. But yeah, I mean, I think the goal, what I want to do here, discuss the happenings, but I, I kind of want to key in on two to three games, you know, from a weekend or from where a, a period of time. Um, and I don't think people want to hear us talk about ten games in detail anyways. But, yeah, um, so you're, you're enjoying the way the game is played in Scotland, which is a similar thing for me because I like the league 
because of the physicality. I also like the league because the fans are nuts. And I think you experienced some of that watching the Celtic match, if you can remember. Yeah, it's Um, just... It's not that it's superior to the other two leagues that I've seen. It's just different. Yeah. Is the excitement and the action better than the MLS? Depends on the game. Yeah. I mean, I've seen seen some MLS games where one side takes the ball and has no intention of doing anything but kicking the ball around for the next 40 minutes and keeping it away from the other team. Mm-hmm. Tough to watch. Yeah. That's when the phone comes out and you're, yeah. you're doing other oh, things. Yeah. And absolutely. You know, I didn't feel that with this particular league and this, this game. Um, so I, I, I enjoyed it very much. That's good to hear. Uh, I just want to talk about a few things. I, I, had some notes. So Celtic are always going to be a team that has a ton of the ball, 70 to 80% possession. Um, teams usually bunker down against them. So, I mean, they score right away with Stephen Welsh's header from a corner, and he wasn't very tightly marked. He didn't really have to fight too hard, which if you're a team like Aberdeen, you're trying not to concede. Obviously, any team is not trying to concede two minutes in, but especially against Celtic on the road, you do not want to do that. And, I mean, that instantly puts them in a hole. Um, And Celtic have, you know, they kind of run a high-press system, so you just get swallowed up by them. When when you're on the ball, what little possession you may have. Um, I had down that uh, Aberdeen had no real sustained possession through 20 minutes. and I think we both noticed that there was, you know, Celtic had about 100. It felt like had a bunch of opportunities to score, and it could have been, you know, 2-3-0 by halftime. Um, I mean, there was 10 minutes at the end of the first half where Everdeen could have scored. There was a, a, a chance that went glaring that they did not take. But then after that, I mean... Celtic dominated the whole game. Um, no real threat from Aberdeen at all. Um, pretty comfortable in the, let's see here, 75th minute, the Portuguese winger Jota with the, the George Michael haircut uh, hits what I would call a piss missile of a goal. Uh, what did you think of that? Uh, first of all, Super dynamic player to watch just in general. Um, he reminds me of uh, Cucho style, you know, just very lethal. Yeah. You know, everything's a bullet basically. But, yeah. A lot of skill. A lot of skill involved there. Fun to watch for sure. Yeah. I mean, that goal is that, – that was one of those where it's just like, wow, <laughs> that was that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, all right. Well, that one happened a while ago, so I didn't expect a ton of big-time discussion there. Just wanted to talk about it a little bit. Um, I think for the next pod, we can cover Celtics' next match. It'll be on television against Kilmarnock. I believe it's 
Saturday or Sunday. It's at like 7 a.m., but obviously the record function exists, so you don't really need to wake up for it. Um, so mark your calendars there. Looks like it's Sunday. Sunday at 7. Okay, mark your calendar. Cut out some time to my co-host and to those listening because Celtic are a fun team to watch, and I think you should. So um, there's that. The Premier League got going in relatively exciting fashion. The first match I wanted to talk about, and I don't know if you have a ton of stuff on this, so we can kind of just play from memory. I have a few notes here. Um, was Everton versus Chelsea, which I believe you caught a bit of, if I'm not mistaken. A very small portion, yes. Okay. Well, Everton, I have as my tip for being relegated. I think they will not be in the Premier League next year. Just a very weak squad in general. Chelsea are, you know, usually heavy hitters in the Premier League, and, and they won this match 1-0. Um, I mean, one of those games, again, where Chelsea, having converted a few more chances, maybe could have won by more. Jordan Pickford, um, the Everton goalie, made a lot of saves that kind of kept their team in it, which is pretty standard procedure for Everton. Um I don't did you see the the penalty that led to the goal at all? I don't I don't know, maybe not. I don't remember. Okay. Well, um really, I mean, the only thing that happened that was like huge in this game was that um Ben Chilwell gets knocked down in the box by Everton midfielder Abdullah Ducore, kind of a soft penalty, but then Jorginho, the midfielder for Chelsea, slots at home, and it's 1-0. And Chelsea don't really play a super exciting brand of soccer. So, you know, they kind of they they like to play on the counterattack. Um, they're pretty rigid defensively, and they don't really have a lot of clinical finishers to score a bunch of goals regardless. Um, so, yeah... Um, that was pretty much it for that one. I think the the main event for this podcast and for the Premier League weekend was Man City versus West Ham, and it's not West Hampton, by the way, just West Ham. But uh, that's okay. <laughs> we're we're just learning here. It's fine. Um, Man City beat West Ham two nil at the London Stadium. Any big thoughts or takeaways from this one before we delve into the nitty gritty? Um, I have notes. What? Any impressions of what happened, or not really? Just um, trying to figure out what what's the deal with the paper hats and the. <laughs> oh, in that's the because crowd. Londoners, really, any Brits pretty much shit themselves when it gets over 70 degrees <laughs> but they make them fold they make them fold them and put them together so yeah. they hand them so out there and was they're not even paper hats that i have never seen before in the stands and it was like almost if not maybe like 90 which is yeah that's hot well, don't get me wrong but like 
that the way they deal with heat up there, it's like, come on, you guys are. You do not need to be making paper hats. I don't need to hear you bitching about it being seventy five. Like it's just like, oh my god. But um, let's see here. I had that West Ham started off the match like within the first three minutes and had a bunch of, a couple of chances, which is kind of standard for um, a Man City game because Man City tend to really grow in the games. Minute um, 59. Minute 59, here we go. Um, two corner kicks in a row, and I think that's what you're talking about. Well, I was talking about more like the first five minutes of this yeah. game. But, but, but they – yeah. They, you know, or Man City was in, was in a bit of trouble there. Anytime you have, you know, two of those happening in a row, that's a potential problem. Yeah. I think a lot of teams try to use set pieces, especially against Man City where they're not going to have a lot of the ball. Set pieces as a real weapon to score. And, um, you know, Man City is stout all across the field, so you never really feel threatened. But, um, yeah, I mean, a team is always going to try to get corners or free kicks because you're not given a ton of opportunity to score against Man City. Um, a lot of the first half was kind of Erling Holland teasing. Like, he was had a number of different chances to maybe score. There are a lot of half chances where he didn't really put the ball away or it, it didn't quite go his way. Um, 35th minute, Ilkay Gundogan slips in a ball for Holland, who's brought down by uh, the keeper for West Ham, who they had to sub in. Um, and that was a pretty tactical foul because if you don't make a play on Holland, he's going to score. If you do, you at least get the, you know, the chance he scuffs the penalty. So that was a penalty. Um, it's Erling Holland, so he's not going to miss. That's yeah. I have thirty fifth minute. Um, those PKs are always interesting to me to watch. They're like a a, a mental yeah. game. Yeah. And uh, you know, a guy like Holland is going to be super confident. And you saw he just, I mean, perfect penalty slots at home, no problem. You know. At twenty six forty six. It looked like Man City scored a goal, but I don't recall. I couldn't tell what had happened or why they called it back. It could have been offsides, maybe. Um, clearly, they scored, but they called called the goal oh, back. Oh, yeah, that was, I think it was an offside decision. Offside, okay. Yeah. I figured it was something like that. Yeah, you get a lot of those where, especially with VAR in the Premier League, it's just like, when a goal goes in, you have to wait for the linesman to put up his flag. So you're like, oh, he scored. Celebrate. And then you look over and it's just, oh, man. Uh, <laughs> that happens a lot. It's it, cruel. Yeah, it is cruel. Especially in VAR when they review it for four minutes and then they say, yeah, no goal. Um, the Premier League has a bit of a habit of, you know, drawing out these decisions. Um, I think one thing I wanted to hit on was how Man City were playing with Holland. Because last season, Man City did not have 
like a true striker, a true number nine. Um, and the way their system is, is like every player can kind of play every position. Um, so it's difficult when you have a true striker, a true number nine. And Man City are all about moving the ball, moving the ball as quickly, or not necessarily as quickly, but moving it a lot and kind of lulling your defense asleep and then making a quick move or just kind of picking the lock. West Ham weren't really sitting back super far, but they were, you know, a lot of teams will sit back against Man City, so uh, oftentimes they have to, like, pick a lock, so to speak, pass the ball around, wait for the defense to make a mistake, and then pounce on it. But West Ham were playing kind of a high line, and that allowed like guys like De Bruyne for their second goal. Kevin De Bruyne just kind of picks out the perfect pass that Holland can run in on, and Holland has more pace than any of the defenders, so he's just able to get the ball, slot it home for 2-0. That was like a running theme of the game was just, like, trying to figure out how to use Holland in this system. And the commentators were kind of talking, like, oh, they're going to have to change the way they play because in the first half they were not, you know, really taking advantage of their opportunities. But then you kind of see how adaptable Holland was to that system, which, you know, I think a great player would have been able to do regardless yeah, I have down here West Ham sort of turned up the gas a little bit around 53, minute 53 or 4, where they clearly were trying to speedily on their possession get, you know, try to, they were trying to score, it seemed like, to mm-hmm. me, more so than in the rest of the game. Yeah. Um, you can always tell when they get, coached to speed up I guess speed up the game is the only way I can I can say it Mm -hmm. because there there will be minutes that go by where it's you know just the ball's kind of getting passed from here to there and And then all of a sudden guy gets will take possession and he'll bomb down the field and he'll do that two or three possessions in a row and then it just kind of goes away again so yeah, a team like West Ham where you're outgunned, you have to pick your battles. you got to pick your times to attack because you're not going to be able to go full throttle against Man City all the time. And the way Man City plays, they kind of just lull you to sleep a lot. They have so much of the ball. They are not going full steam ahead at all times. So you have to be really defensively disciplined otherwise you're conceding four five six because they'll just pick you apart if you're not disciplined and if you're running you know if you're bombing down the pitch and you lose the ball man city are a team that will get you on the counterattack in three passes you know so a lot of times you'll see teams you know bunker down and then kind of pick their times of when they're gonna march down the field you know yeah I had a note down here that uh Cancelo's yellow card for making a 
reference to needing glasses. I found that rather funny. Yeah, they they don't really like when you uh, I don't know make fun, degrade, uh, refs. In that one of those th- things that I was had mentioned in other podcasts is seeing how players react to foul calls, which we have seen a number of different times. Um, I think in the Premier League, that's the best league for it because these guys are amazing, like the best in the world, and they know it, and they are not afraid to, you know, kind of, (laughs) I don't know, get a little goofy with the refs or just tell them how, you know, they disagree. So Cancelo gets a foul called on him and then makes like a goggle, like a glasses, like, moat like i don't even know what you'd call it yeah spectacles spectacles right to the uh linesman and you know of course that's not gonna end well a little Uh, bit i thought it was pretty pretty awesome actually yeah i like a little character from my players so that was that was funny any um i mean after the 65th minute like man city just cruise control not a whole lot going on as what can happen sometimes once they take a lead they feel is um you know adequate i mean a lot of times they'll keep going but if a team is just going to begin to bunker things kind of just end any players that stood out to you in any conceivable way i didn't do a very good job of usually i'll jot down some different names uh, not necessarily the case with this game uh, it's one of the things I'll have to get a little bit better at I guess yeah um, I think obviously the the big takeaway is Erling Holland ad- adjusted to the Premier League and is going to be just fine because he scored two goals rather easily um, so obviously probably the player of the game hard to say and it's nice as a Man City fan that, you know, your big signing is already paying off, it seems, um, which is nice, and that was what he was brought in for, was to score goals, and he's scoring right away. And a lot of times when you bring in a big signing and he's not performing right away, it, it you know, fans start to get impatient. Did we make the wrong move or whatever? I don't think we'll have that problem with Erling Holland. Um Kevin De Bruyne, probably the, in my opinion, the best midfielder in the world. Um, he was just his usual self. I mean, that pass he plays to Holland for the second goal was, I mean, 30, 40 yards, just perfect, perfectly placed. And, I mean, he does stuff like that all the time. So, um, West Ham, I mean, they, they were okay. I kind of expected... I think a lot of people expected a Man City win. Um, but, I mean, I think it's going to be hard for any team to take down Man City this year, whether that be the championship or just in a game. Um, I don't know. Did you feel like they looked like a championship team? I wouldn't be able to tell what a championship team looks like. Yeah. To be honest with you. Um, I might have a different opinion of that as I 
continue to watch this season, but um, I, I I couldn't say to be honest with you. <laughs> it is really early, regardless. So, um, just in general, what were your thoughts like? Just the first Premier League weekend. Did you have anything that stuck out to you? Uh, maybe about fans or just the culture, the way the game is played? Because, I mean, so far, most of your soccer watching has been MLS. So I, I was just wondering, is, is there anything that stuck out to you about European soccer? Well, the scale. The scale of the arenas that these guys are playing in is you know, 60, 70,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, the game seems awful short to me. Yeah, uh, that's a lot different from, like, American You know, NFL sports. football, you're three hours and 30 minutes, sometimes four hours. Yeah. It's, the, it's the entire afternoon. Yeah. Um, this is usually under two. Yeah, usually ends under two hours. So uh, it's not a bad thing. Don't get me wrong, because I think for the the way the game is played, it couldn't possibly be any longer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Ninety minutes is a good round number. I get the feeling that uh, the fans are doing a lot of the same things that we do here in the U.S. As far as they're showing up early, they're doing their tailgating, they're they're drinking in the pubs is more of the thing. There. Okay. But uh, yeah. Sure. So it's a day, it's a day long for, for the, the folks that are at the game. Um, just like what, what we do here. Yeah. Um, so I, it's, I think it's something that of note, if you haven't seen, uh, a soccer match, premier league, MLS, Scottish league, it's going to be a little bit, rough to watch at first but if you live in the states and you're near an mls team go out to the stadium and watch it live mm-hmm. um and it honestly it it doesn't take too many games until you understand what's what's happening yeah the strategy starts to present itself the opportunities you know you'll find yourself getting a little bit more excited over you know attempts on goal shots on goal corner kicks penalty kicks things that you know you have to take in a few games to understand um but other than that no i mean it's just it's it's crazy to me to think that there's the scale of places like great britain and scotland and you know, other European countries, they're like our, some, some of them are the size of like a our state. Lar- large states. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to have that many clubs that close, it, it would almost be like having four NFL or five NFL teams within 200 miles of each other. Yeah. It, uh, it really is a lot different when, you know, the easiest example is London. I think they have seven top flight clubs this year. 
I don't, there's really no good way to compare it to American sports. The only thing I could think of is like, like college, colleges are close to each other. So, you know, oftentimes college sport rivalries are fairly local, but even then not, not usually like the same city or anything. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it'll become a lot more fun as you learn about the players, the teams, you know, the, the storylines and all of that good stuff, you know. It, for me, that was what got me into F1, you know. It's the characters. It's what's going on, not just on the field, but off, you know. I, I like stories, you know. And I think soccer is one of the the best sports for that, and it also helps for me that the, the the fan culture is just a lot. I I feel like it's a a lot more entrenched into your local community, and then just a, a lot more passionate than what we can get over here, you know. But um, overall, I think you know, it's gonna be fun just to you know talk about soccer with you this whole season and I it seems like you have general enthusiasm for what's happening so far yeah it's been really fun actually um starting to get to the point where I as I said before things are always more always more interesting when you know what it is that you're watching Mm -hmm. sounds sounds elementary but yeah um don't do what I did and walk by the TV and, you know, talk about how boring it looks. Yeah. Uh, give I, it give it a shot. And like I said, the absolute best way to do it is to go to the stadium. Yeah. That's the best way. Then maybe dip your toe in watching a couple games on TV or go to a, go to a place where they have, you know, it's one of the things I was thinking about Sadly, we don't have a local place that we could go for a Saturday or Sunday and enjoy one or two games. I mean, we we probably could, but we would have. You'd have to go out. You'd probably what would end up happening is you'd you'd have to ask for it to be put right. on. Right, and once you know? football starts, that's that probably won't happen. Yeah, but um, I mean, we watched the championship game at a local place last mm-hmm. year, and yeah. they had it on almost every tv in the place so yeah um with 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 hope you know there's hope that maybe it'll get that popular at some point i think so and as i've said like a number of different times we're in a world cup year that always brings more exposure here in the states which is fine because ultimately a faction of those people will stay engaged yeah so that's That's all that's that's what it does so a lot to look forward to in the soccer landscape, we are going to be back hopefully next week. I will be moved into my new digs in Westerville. Um, so we're going to be remote. Uh, so if, I don't know if you notice a change in sound or whatever, we'll see. That's why. Um, but we're still going to continue to bring the best content. Yeah, it's it's hard to believe that. Um, well, I guess 
with the exception of last week and this being episode seven, that we've probably done this for roughly two months and it went very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was a lot of fun. I look forward to continuing. It'll be a little different not having, uh, you right here in the studio, but with technology, we should be able to get past that. Yeah. We are going to continue on. So that won't be an issue. Absolutely. Um, you don't have anything else specific? I uh, Not really. Okay. I'm going to uh, give a shout out to my daughter, uh, Chelsea Suits, Staff Sergeant Chelsea Suits, uh, who heads up the uh, Marine Fighter Attack Training Squadron number 501 down uh, at uh, Air Station uh, Beaufort. South Carolina and uh, the guys and gals in the shop there have been kind enough to listen to the podcast while they are uh, serving this great country and making it possible for Garrett and I to sit in these two seats and do this week after week. So thank you very much to uh, Attack Training Squadron 501 down there in Beaufort. Keep listening, guys. We really appreciate everything you do. And, of course, uh, couldn't be uh, more proud of my my daughter, Chelsea Suits, who's a staff sergeant there, uh, working hard every day to protect the country. So uh, thank, thanks uh, to the gang down there. Well, we certainly love the support that, you know, they brought to us. And, uh, you know, flip on a race or a... Uh, a match of footy, and uh, this will start to all make sense to everyone. But thank you to everyone that has listened ever. So yeah, we just appreciate anyone that's listening. Okay. Well, I guess let's get out of here then, right? All right. For Richard Tanaka, Staff Sergeant Chelsea Suits, I'm Bob Lucius. I'm Garrett Lucius. This has been Tackling the Chicane, copyright 2022. We'll see you guys next time.